Hello and welcome to Making UX Work, the Give Good UX podcast. I'm your host, Joe Natoli, and our focus here is on folks like you doing real, often unglamorous, UX work in the real world. You'll hear about their struggles, their successes, and their journey to and through the trenches of product design, development, and of course, user experience. My guest today is Jason Bowden. Jason's core disciplines are in three focused areas, UX design strategy, creative direction, and mentorship. He's been a designer his entire life, but professionally since 2001. Jason believes firmly in making the world a better place through design and in building and coaching the next generation of user-centered, business-savvy, ethical designers. And that last part is important because as I'm sure you'll pick up on, Jason truly believes in hope. He believes in the good in people, and he is steadfastly committed to his family, which drives both his work ethic and his worldview. Here's my conversation with Jason Bowden on Making UX Work. So, Jason, how are you? I'm great. I'm uh, I'm terrific, actually. Terrific. Yep. Please do tell. Uh, well, it's uh, it's been a good sort of crazy week, uh, but in a um, very sort of up- uplifting exciting way. You know, just a whole lot of stuff going on. I really like being busy and I like uh, making progress on a lot of fronts. That that stuff is really fun. And um, I was also at the UIE conference. So I came back a little inspired, a little motivated. So that's also good. Yeah. It's always good to go to conferences like that. For me, at least not even so much for the other, you know, the speakers and the presentations, but just the energy that happens. Yeah. At events like that, I think is really, really positive. It's recharging in a way. Yeah, well, hundreds of like-minded people all hanging out together is always fun. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> so what are you working on right now? Uh, I'm doing some sort of, let's see, I would call them updates to existing things going on. So um, I don't know if you're familiar with the Kano model, but, um, you know, it's this uh, it's this way to sort of judge customer delight. Mm-hmm. Jared Spool talks about it all the time. Mm-hmm. Anyway, we're doing a bunch of uh, basic expectation upgrading, which is great. Um, you know, fixing things like search results uh, or enhancing search results, I should say. Um, you know, looking at the ways that users log into our site, that kind of thing. So uh, it's, it's stuff that I really enjoy. It's sort of this uh, ongoing maintenance, but it's always making things better. Yeah, I mean, Kano, I'm interested actually in how you're approaching that and implementing it because Kano seems to be one of those things in terms of you know what I've run across where it's implemented either to great success or great frustration. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm curious about how it's working in your organization and, and how it's received and how we're, what everybody's getting out of it. Yeah, so that it's it's a couple of levels, right? So in theory it's great and everybody it's it's easy to to visualize and it's easy to see and it makes a lot of sense when i'm selling it to somebody but in the implementation part of it it's always a little bit um, i wouldn't i don't think it's fair to call it frustrating but it's definitely uh much more difficult in practice than it is in theory i'll put it that way you know we are constantly evangelizing constantly selling constantly um, testing and using analytics to to make sure that um, we're focusing on the right things. And a lot of times those happen to be basic expectations. So uh, it sort of works out in the Kano framework, if you will. Mm-hmm. But um, I, I wouldn't say that it's uh, an overall adopted mindset everywhere, but it's something that we talk about all the time in the context of fixing things. And we should also probably, and this is my bad, for anybody who's listening that doesn't know 
what Kano is, maybe we should take a minute to, to describe it and how it works, or at least how you're, how you're approaching it in your organization. Yeah, sure. Um, so again, using the Jared Spool model, um, you're talking about the basic things that people expect from your, uh, from your service or from your website. Um, his example is in a hotel, you always expect hot water, even if you're on the 30th floor. Must be, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. And, but the infrastructure involved in actually you know, pumping hot water to the 30th floor and keeping it circulating all the time is, is a lot, and it takes a lot of work, and it's expensive. And that's the, uh, that's the line that we're always having to sell on. Which makes absolute sense. Yeah. On top of that, um, you, know, you have your standard sort of progression of features, that you're always releasing new features every release and um, always improving your product. And then on top of that, you have these things called delighters, which are little maybe bits of copy or animations or ways to give the user a feeling of meaning that really add to your product. But the, uh, the thing about those is you cannot implement delighters before you do the basic expectations. That's the, the bottom line, I guess. Yeah, which, which makes total sense. The progression of that, where right, we've got some bottom line deal breakers <laughs> or deal makers, as it were, sure. that absolutely have to be implemented. And if we don't at least hit that bar, everything else is for naught, exactly. right? which is something that I think a lot of people who do what we do experience, especially when they're working with clients or working inside organizations. Yeah, exactly. A, a product manager put it to me very well. He said, you know, we're always chasing the shiny new toy. So anytime we have a new feature coming out, all the scrum teams get diverted to that and we work on that and release that. Meanwhile, you know, people can't misspell a word on your website because you haven't addressed the, the search result algorithm. Mm-hmm. How much of a struggle is that for you to move people's attention away from <laughs> the, the easily exciting stuff and back to the real problems, which if you don't solve you don't get where you're going. Sure. Uh, it's, it's getting easier. You know, I think it's, it's human nature to always want to do the new thing and, and build the new experience. And, and I am definitely guilty of it too. But we, um, you know, we, we talk about these things all the time and we have visibility into the backlog and we can, uh, we can sort of try and prioritize these things. If, uh, if we know somebody's in a certain code base and, and they're looking at something, we can say, Oh, can we fix this as well? So we look for opportunities, you know, to put those in there where we think it might be easy for the dev team. Easy, quote unquote. What's the what's the makeup of your team? Like your immediate team and then your interaction with, you know, uh, developers, product managers, et cetera, et cetera. Yep. So uh, on my immediate team, there are four of us, um, three designers and then our, our manager. And then um, we work hand in hand with a, a marketing UX team as well. And uh, so we, we sort of combine, and that makes maybe eight or nine of us that are working on a project at the same time in, in various capacities. That's from a, the design team standpoint. On the dev side, there are, let's see, six Scrum teams that we support. So at any time, we may be you know, working with a, a team in Ireland or uh, a team that we sit near, and our co- my coworker might be working with the same team doing something similar or uh, um, something completely different. It doesn't matter, but we, uh, we have to be in constant communication that way. So there's a lot of moving parts. Um, you know, we rely heavily on our project managers and our product managers to let us know that we're going the right direction. And, um, 
you know, I, I guess the, the answer is we support six scrum teams from a development standpoint and it gets messy sometimes. I guess. Yeah. But it's fun. You know, we're, we're very agile, you know, obviously, and we're, um, we try and work pretty lean. So we don't have a lot of really heavy process. Mm-hmm. And so, um, obviously communication is really big for us. Yeah. I would think so with that much going on six, I mean, six teams all with, it sounds like with active projects. Oh yeah. Yep. That's, that's, that's yeah, a lot of all juggling. working on different parts of the app. Yeah. How do you I'm trying to think of how I want to ask this question? Um, aside from obviously your PMs, how do you manage that interaction and that communication with with these teams in particular between between UX efforts, design efforts, and those teams, especially when you're disconnected, right by geography? Yeah, uh, great question. It's really hard. It's actually something that I struggle with. I, I have this uh, designer brain that is sort of you know, always moving and, and trying to solve problems. And uh, sometimes getting down in the weeds of project management is really tough, especially when um, there's so much going on at the same time. So uh, once again, it's, it's communication. It's always communication. And, you know, the, the, when it breaks down, the first thing you look at is where did the meeting not happen or where did the information not get transferred that made it so we shipped something that we really shouldn't have shipped. Can you give me an example of a time when that happened? Um, yeah, let me uh, let me think for a second. If, if you can talk about it. Yeah, I'm trying to uh, figure out a way to, to word it. Um, <laughs> I'll be really general about it, which I try and avoid sure. as far as communication goes. But uh, I'll design something, and then we'll talk about it with the Scrum team. And then later on, when they're you know doing their planning game and assigning points to it, they'll realize that they can't get it all in. So then... Um, they'll sort of pare back the scope a little and they don't know that possibly what they've cut out is integral to the, the experience that we designed mm-hmm. and, and then we'll ship something and, and, you know, I'll, I'll look at it during a, a review and I'm like, guys, you know, we got to do this part. This is key to it. And then, you know, we're either scrambling cause you know, we're, we're just trying to get it into the next release or, you know, we have to move it sure. off and that's sort of frequent, you know, and, you know, people talk about trade-offs all the time, and, and that's one of those things. But if we don't talk about them, um, stuff gets lost really quickly. Yeah, and I think, quite honestly, you're not alone there. Because one piece that's that's often missing in large organizations, especially with distributed teams of any kind, is the sort of the ranking part when it comes to features, functionality, requirements back to the Kano model for a second, right? These are our must be's. These are the things that absolutely must be in this next sprint, in this next release, uh, whatever. And when you're moving really fast and you're juggling multiple parts, that sometimes gets communicated, but not to the degree that it should, Exactly. where these kinds of things happens, right? The, the, the dev team does what they think needs to be done because they're staring down a date. Right. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. That's exactly right. And it's also a little more nuanced in that they may deliver the functionality that you were looking for, but the animation that alerts the user that that functionality is happening, they didn't ship. Right. And, and suddenly it's broken. Yeah. It, it just it doesn't work for the user because they have no idea what's going on. Yeah. Do you think that's a symptom of just volume? Okay. The, the, the volume of stuff that you have to keep on top of that things slip through the cracks like that? Um, yeah. I, I think that's that's one of them. I think it's... It, we're just moving so fast. I think that it is, like you said earlier, we are always trying to hit a time. Mm-hmm. So in this uh, triangle of time, quality, or money, the money and the time are often immovable. 
So we have to make trade-offs and that's where they get made. Sometimes if I'm not in the room or if one of my counterparts isn't in the room, you know, um, and don't get me wrong, our, our development teams are amazing and they're really fast and they're great at thinking about the user. Mm-hmm. They obviously don't have the insight that somebody from the team has where they can say, well, look, this feedback here is so important. Otherwise, you know, we might as well not build this. Yeah. And, and you know, those, those conversations are, are sort of few and far between, I think. Yeah. And I honestly think that a lot of developers in particular, right, get, get a great de- degree of, um, unfair blame because everybody sort of points to them and says, well, you guys, you know, made these decisions and made these trade-offs without us. But I think it's more a matter of they're doing the absolute best that they can with what they have to work with and the knowledge that they have, the time that they have, the experience that they have. Right. And they're making their best judgment because they often have to, right? There isn't, there isn't anybody to ask. There isn't time to say, can we talk to so-and-so about this? They're sort of forced to just blast it out. Yep. Right. And one of the things I see to your story is that I think it's more than a little bit unfair the way these things get presented um, in public. Yeah. All right. I see a lot of that and it bothers me. So yeah, I am in the exact same boat, Joe. I think um, a lot of times if something breaks, I would, I would put the blame on myself or, or the design team versus the devs because they are, they're just going, you know, and, and they're, they're paid to crank out code and they do a great job of it. And so I think anytime a design element falls, like you said, the default is to say, well, the developers didn't code it, but it's maybe we designed too big a scope or there wasn't enough communication up front. So, you know. Yeah, I think you're right about that. Yeah, I, I like to, like is probably a strong word, but I feel like the design team should shoulder a lot of that blame and it comes down to communication. Yeah, I think we're in violent agreement there. <laughs> so anyway, I mean, it was it was just it was good to hear you say, look, these guys are, are really you know doing an amazing job, and with with the workload, and this is without me knowing anything concrete about what you're doing and and, and the true volume of what you're doing. Yep. Just by description alone, I, I think that you and these six teams are shouldering an incredible workload, and obviously, right? Yep, absolutely. You don't work for a small organization. <laughs> yeah, it's it's a big very you know we're we're agile but it is it's really difficult to pivot really quickly in that way i would think so and i also think because in the insurance industry because i've had insurance clients as well you're serving multiple masters in terms of you know who the business serves directly versus the journey all the way to the end consumer definitely and our end consumers could be different depending on different parts of the business yeah and um we have different goals obviously so yeah, it's it's definitely tough. Yeah, on any given week or, or on any given initiative, the, the person on the receiving end and, and where the value has to go and, and what that loop looks like probably changes to a great degree, I would imagine. Totally. And then you know we have uh, we're highly regulated, of course. You know we're we're a financial company, so we you know, we're extremely reg- regulated, and sometimes you know those types of um, problems that need to be solved, whether it's compliance or regulation needs to, that trumps everything. And so, you know, sometimes mm-hmm. we'll spend part of a sprint fixing a disclosure or making sure that uh, we're doing the right thing for our customers in this way. And, and even that results in more trade-offs. But, um, you know, so in that way, I guess you have to pivot pretty quickly. But um, yeah, there's all those outside forces. Uh, it's a lot to deal with. It's fun. I love it, but it's, it's a lot. Yeah. So 
do you see those constraints as a challenge in a good way as, as beneficial to the work that you're doing or can they sometimes be an obstacle? Yeah. So I believe in constraints wholeheartedly. Um, this goes to there, there's a, there's a mindset that, you know, you are going to go corporate and it's going to be stuffy and you're going to be relegated to a great cubicle or you're going to go to a startup and it's going to be a lot of fun and you're going to drink beer and play pool. But <laughs> the, the constraints in um, a corporate setting, I find to be so much more uplifting and they spawn so much creativity. I, I really, I think I thrive in an area where you can innovate in sort of prescribed solutions, if you will. So mm -hmm. being able to change things, even though there's a, you know, there's a lot of corporate process and there's a lot of um, regulation and there's a lot of other people that are impacted. I find that I, I just, I really enjoy that. So, um, you know, I've done sort of both sides of that spectrum and I really, really prefer corporate, which might be sort of weird to hear, but I, I think it's, um, I think it's a lot more fun. No, it is weird to hear because I'm very much cut from the same cloth and I enjoy it for the same reasons. I mean, I've worked in enterprise, mm. you know, for most of my career and that's those problems to me are much more interesting. Um, number one, and it has everything to do with the constraints because what I go back to is, is creative professionals of any kind, right? If you talk to a writer, you talk to a designer, a UX person, even developers, I think to some degree, one of the hardest, most intimidating things that we ever encounter is a blank page. Absolutely. A blank slate, right? Yep. <laughs> <laughs> okay. There's nothing. You know, there's nothing to go on. There's there's no clear place to start. There's no clear identified obstacles or challenges. So to me, like you're saying, I think all those constraints lend themselves to what we do. Yeah, Absolutely makes for really interesting problems. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. We did um, years ago, we were working on a, a video sort of opening slate for um, some videos we were doing. And um, it was basically just animating a logo. Mm -hmm. That was our only constraint. And we, we took it to this amazing agency and we said, do whatever you want, go wild. And they really struggled with it for that reason. Yeah. Once we, <laughs> once we gave them, yeah. Exactly. And, and they, I mean, they, the stuff they were bringing back, we were just, you know, um, again, great agency, but we were not impressed. And so we started giving them some, <clears throat> some guardrails and yeah, they, the, the thing they did in the end was awesome, but it took a while to get there. Yeah. Yeah. And I see that over and over and over and over again. That's why I always say constraints are your friend. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. They really, really, really are. And, uh, I always wonder, I, I think there's this idea Maybe design schools are guilty of this. I don't know. But I see a lot in, in young designers, what I see is that at the beginning of their careers, they're very much into that idea of, you know, like, don't tie my hands. Yep. And and then after they get out there and start doing the work, they start to feel the opposite, which is the scenario that you just described. <laughs> sure. Well, in school, too, you know, there there's no budgets. Yeah. There's a, there's a loose timeline that's pretty long, generally. And, um, you know, the assignment is go make a magazine cover. Right. You know, choose your favorite music genre and go make a magazine cover. And, you know, you can name it, you can choose the images, you can choose the typography and it's, it's fun. And you want to transfer that when you get out of school, but you can't go to a enterprise job and make a magazine cover like that. It doesn't work. No, no, it doesn't. So you went to school at the Art Institute, correct? I did. Yep. And that was California, I think. 
It was San Diego. What was that experience like? And, and how did it, in, in what ways do you feel like it, it prepared you for what you're doing now or, or, or didn't <laughs> either in either case? Um, it was, it was amazing for uh, a couple of reasons. Namely, I guess I should say, you know, what you were talking about earlier is going to um, conventions for the energy and, and meeting people and talking and maybe not necessarily for the speakers. Mm-hmm. Um, that was what art school was for me. It was, um, I met, you know, I met some lifelong friends there and we did some great work and I definitely got some great fundamentals there. Um, but it wasn't, I put it to you this way. After I got out and got a job, I learned so much more in the first four weeks of that job than I ever did at school. Yeah. And so, you know, <laughs> when you get, when you're actually working and you're, you're thrown into something and suddenly you have clients waiting for you and you've got an art director saying, you got to do it this way. And you've got a publisher saying, we got to go to print in seven days. Mm-hmm. It's something totally different than, than the school experience. So um, I, I don't know how to recreate that at school. Maybe Jared Spool might be getting close to it mm-hmm. with his school. But um, I think that uh, that is the the biggest disconnect between school and the real world. And it's it's something that I haven't seen recreated ever. Me either. And I've been teaching part-time at various colleges, you know, since 1995. Yeah. And I have yet, and there've been some good programs, all right. And some very good people. So I don't want to sound like I'm disparaging anybody. I'm not. Yeah, of course. But these environments by and large are still extremely isolated. And what I've experienced in, in the courses I've taught, because I try to do it in a way that's a little more, uh, realistic and, and, and sort of, you know, give the students realistic problems to deal with and realistic situations to deal with. Yep. Um, is that it shocks them. Yeah. Now that all of that leads me to wonder, and I'm curious, you know, based on, on your experience, I'm curious to see what you think while college programs are lacking the real world element or context that we're talking about here. I often also wonder whether there's a balance to be struck. Okay. Where you sort of need the free form stuff at that stage in your life, just to learn how to, how to absorb all this stuff. Yep. Yep. Right. To sort of get your training wheels first and then, okay, here's how you actually drive on the road. Yeah. Absolutely. I, I wonder if, if that's a balancing act and how much of each is really necessary. Yeah. I think it's gotta be right. I think um, you have to learn sort of your creative process. You have to learn, how you come up with ideas and when you like to work and what those conditions are like. And then you can transfer that out to the real world. And, and I think you'll be much more successful when you are thrown into uh, the fire, so to speak. So self-discovery has to come first. It has to, I think. Yeah. Okay. You have to understand what you like, what you don't, um, you know, the world is so big, especially now uh, the design world is so big and there's so much information that I think you really have to figure out who you are first and then, um, once you get there, I think it's easy to sort of transfer that out, but um, it's still hard to prepare yourself for that. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Maybe it's as simple as, you know, advisors telling you, look, it's going to be way different when you get out of here. And this is how. That could be. In terms of your own career trajectory, since you got out of school, how has that changed for you in terms of what you started out doing, what you're doing now, what you've done over, over time? And, and how's that evolved? How's it, how's it morphed? How's it, has it grown? Yeah, I've been uh, really lucky in that I have um, I've gotten to do a ton of different things. So I started in the visual design area, and um, you know, first jobs were working in magazines and uh, you know doing image retouching and making advertisements and things like that. And 
that transferred into, you know, more sort of national advertising and, and bigger, bigger things and packaging like 3d design. Um, and then that sort of transferred into interactive design where, you know, started getting into websites in like the late nineties in the early two thousands, I guess. And, um, really getting into this idea of, um, digital design. And so I've, I've, had jobs where I've gotten to do all of that and run those processes, which has been really amazing. Um, the one sort of factor that remained constant through all of that was that I really loved the psychology behind it. Mm-hmm. I loved being able to take somebody's eye through um, some messaging or being able to lead them through um, a, an app so that they're, they can achieve the task that they're doing. And so that led me to, to really understand um, and this might be actually contrary to what I was just talking about at school, but to really understand that UX was the the place that I was meant to be yeah. in that um, really understanding users and solving problems and using, um, you know, elements of psychology and design and even architecture to be able to, to, to solve problems, which is, uh, which is where I am right now. And um, like I said, I've been really lucky. Yeah. And I think that's often what happens is, is that, the more you experience your sort of sense of, of what you really love about this changes to some degree. Sure. Right. For you, the way you've described it, and I'm very much the same way I I was, I started out as a designer, right. A print designer, but the part that always was the most intriguing part was this sort of, I, I don't know, cognitive dance that happens between what you produce and how people receive it. Um, and, and are affected by it. Yep. Yep, absolutely. And I like the um I like this I've always liked the thought that your messaging has to work on every medium. So somebody needs to be able to see it on their phone, it needs to work on TV, it needs to work on a billboard, it needs to work everywhere and be consistent. And I I, I really enjoy thinking about all those angles and all those levers. And so um I got to do a lot of that as an art director, but um it, it's it's different now. I'm on a small design team and um I get to do end to end. So now I get to use all of the experience that I've had um, to go to, to start in research and, and really dig into how users are using things and do a lot of contextual inquiry and, and contextual interviews and talking to people and move that all the way through the design process, you know, through the, through the discovery and the wireframes and, and into final design, which is um, why I say I've been lucky because I can do that end to end and it's, it's so fun to me to see one thing from beginning to end is it's a blast. Yeah. And I think that's where the challenge is for a lot of us. I think that there are parts of that entire process that I think to outside people would be outside the realm of what a UX professional or designer or, or something like that actually does. It's all these little pieces yeah. that don't fit neatly into the job description. I think that really yeah. <laughs> get us excited, you know, about, about what we do. Absolutely. And I think the, the model that I'm talking about, this maybe generalist model is, um, it, it may not be scalable to a degree. Um, if we, you know, we're four people, right. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm 25% of the team. If we were 300 people, then we might have to be more specialized and it might make more sense to have a visual team and a research team where people can really yeah. uh, use their skills to, to dig in and, and do what they're good at versus um, generalists. You know, I, I don't like this jack-of-all-trades thought because I think we can go deep in all of these disciplines. Mm-hmm. But um, like I said, I don't know if it's scalable. No, I don't think it is. And I think there's a line there somewhere right? Right between promoting yourself or attempting to be 
jack of all trades, right? Excellent at everything. I don't think that's possible. Number one. Sure. But at the same time, a sort of a, a, a deep curiosity and respect and um, acknowledgement of how all those parts work together, I think is a critical part of the job. For example, I've had many meetings over my career with database architects. Mm-hmm. Okay. They live in a world that is absolutely foreign to me. Totally. <laughs> These are some of the sharpest people I've ever met in my entire life. I mean, the brain power there is, is just astounding to me. Yep. Yep. And although I don't get it and although I would never want to dive wholeheartedly into it, I have thoroughly enjoyed those collaborations because the connections between what they do and what I do are very, very important. And I think if you don't go there at least and, and be willing to try and immerse yourself and learn something, I think you're missing an opportunity to be better at your part. Oh man, that's such a great point. Absolutely. I wish I could expand on it because it's such a great point, but it, there's nothing more to say, Joe. That's, that's <laughs> it. <Yeah>. Wow. <laughs> I'm rarely that good. <laughs> yeah, that's it. We're done here. Okay. <laughs> Show's over, folks. Um, here's a question related to all this that somebody threw out. Uh, Chris Alvin, who I follow on Twitter, said this last week, and I thought, man, what a great question. I'm going to ask this um, in my next interview. So here it is related to everything that we're talking about. First question is this. What do people think that your role is? Uh, amazing question. They, um, so it, it, it sort of depends on the context of the situation. Mm-hmm. The, the, the relationships that I'm building are at different levels. Mm-hmm. So some people, I may have helped them with some visual stuff. Um, some people I may have, um, you know, taken them through a design sprint and gotten some great insights using a a quick prototype and some contextual interviews. Mm -hmm. Um, so I may be a researcher to some people. I may be a a graphic designer to some people. Uh, you know, sometimes I'm just somebody that can bounce an idea off of and, um, I can get into it. So that's sort of a, a non-answer. No, it's not. (laughs) Here's, and here's. Uh, sort of a, an addition to that. Does that interpretation change based on that person's role, how they see you? Based on that person's role. Um, like in other words, project managers see you as one thing. Developers see you as something else. You know, your, your fellow immediate team members see you as something else. Uh, I don't think it's that specific. I don't think it's role. I think it's um, maybe part of the business that they're in and the engagement that we've had. Mm -hmm. So um, I I work with a lot of architects who can build something in a flash. Um, What they need from me is a lot of art direction. Mm -hmm. I work with uh, other groups that, you know, are really interested in trying to figure out which problem they're solving. And so I work with them to do a lot of facilitation and, uh, uh, you know, a lot of research. So I think it's more around the group and not necessarily the individual. And, um, you know, it's always their problem. Now I will say I'm trying to, to get them all to, to see me as sort of a strategist and and somebody that can help, um, end to end and they can bring me in really early and I can talk about the problem that we're solving and and I can validate that it's a problem, Mm -hmm. you know, and, and we can move on through the design process from there. Um, you know, and I'm not there with some, some of the businesses and, and some of them I'm very much there. So, so now we just got to the second question that he asked, which is what is your role really? <laughs> yeah. So, uh, 
And that sounds like that's what you're trying to do. Yeah, just rewind this about uh, 20 seconds, yeah. and, and that's it. Really. <laughs> um, I'm, I'm. It's tough. I am. I see myself as a strategist, um, but I'm not that to to everyone. Yeah. So my role really is whatever people need at the time, really. And um, again, I've been lucky in that I can do a lot of that. You know, mm-hmm. um, I would say that research is my my weakest area. In that I'm not familiar enough with you know calculating confidence intervals and things like that, but I can I can definitely get in and validate a problem, and I can moderate usability tests or whatever it needs to be. So um, it's it's that I'm trying to be everything to everyone, and maybe that's uh, to my detriment actually. But um, uh, you know, it's 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 about relationships. I think it's par for the course inside an organization. Um, in, in part of a collaborative team of any kind, even if you're working as an outside consultant. I think that's par for the course. Yeah. And success for me there is if they will consider me as a, you know, a design expert, if you will. And, and they will, anytime they think they need something design related, they'll contact me. That is, that's it really. That, that makes me happy. So I I see that as success and I can build on that. That sounds right. And it sounds value. Valuable is the word I was looking for there. Hopefully. (laughs) Yeah. I think it's valuable. Um, have you ever been asked to do something that is far outside of your, your comfort zone or your expertise that you were uncomfortable with? Oh yeah. <laughs> yeah. All the time. Um, it depends on what we're talking about. So I've been asked to fly to Poland and give a presentation online, online advertising. Um, that was, that was years ago, but, um, that was terrifying to me. <laughs> um, not to flying to Poland. I, I love travel, but the, uh, you know, getting up in front of people and, and speaking, has always been scary for, for a lot of people, including myself. But um, it's also one some of the most fun I've ever had. That's, stuff like that is amazing. So I really like it when, when I get asked that. You know, um, There are some times when I know that maybe I can't add a lot of value, so I will um, connect them with somebody in order to get them where they need to be if it's, if it's too much. But if you're talking about being uncomfortable, I actually really like that. So the speaking thing, when they asked you to do this, did it surprise you that you enjoyed it once you started doing it? Uh, yeah, maybe a little. Yeah, it was. Um, I was focused on the act of standing there and talking, and it's so much more than that. It's uh, you know, not to be too cliche, but it's it's telling a story and it's engaging with an audience and it's trying to build this sort of almost dramatic arc of a of a storyline so that you can deliver something impactful and interesting to them. Mm-hmm. So it's more than just, it's more than just standing there. It's, it's trying to deliver something value, valuable to people that are sitting in trainings for, you know, a week, eight hours a day. Mm-hmm. Um, I find that part of it really interesting. So, um, I didn't know that I liked that until I did it, but, uh, you know, I've, I've done a ton of, uh, speaking since then. And, uh, I really like it. I, I like the preparation. I even like practicing the speeches and stuff. Um, Cool. Invariably, yeah. Invariably, I I never really say what I plan to say, but um, yep. <laughs> it gets there. It gets, it gets pretty close. That's why I don't rehearse. <laughs> I just I get years ago I gave up. Yeah, I, I just stopped. I said, you know what, this is just dumb. I'm gonna go up there and I'm gonna say what I'm gonna say. So whatever. Yeah, <laughs> that, yeah. That's not for everybody, but. No, yeah, there are a couple of approaches. I, I mean, I'm sort of in the middle, and maybe I need to choose a side. Yeah. But I, I can't just get up there and wing it. Uh, I need to at least know my concepts. But yeah, um, of course, I, I don't. I don't feel 
very confident if I don't run over it at least, you know, seven or 10 times. Well, do you think there are some parallels in doing that? Okay. in storytelling and, and making sure that you communicate with people. Are, are there some parallels there to what you do on a daily and weekly basis? Sure. Absolutely. And that, that's one of the things that, um, the, the team talks about all the time, you know, um, I've said it like three times now, communication is so important. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, this, I just heard a great quote about, um, misinformation being the biggest killer of your business. Oh. And I think, yeah, I think it's true though. I think anytime you're up there and you're talking about something and you're sort of vague, it really dilutes your story. It, it doesn't help anybody. And everybody leaves that meeting having a slightly different interpretation of what you're talking about. Yeah. And you are sunk at that point. So yeah, um, I work on that a lot. Yeah. And I think I'm of the belief that it takes a certain amount of courage, quite frankly, to speak plainly and clearly and to, to do so in a way where it's humble and, and you're not presenting yourself as, you know, the, the ultimate authority. And what I mean by that is, and this came up yesterday, I was interviewed um, for a podcast that came up yesterday about language, okay, and, and clients and acronyms and jargon and terminology. Yes. All of those things get thrown out. And this is just Joe's opinion, okay? I, I think that a, that a big part of the reason people on all sides of every fence talk like that, write like that, present like that, is because there's two reasons. Number one, they've sort of been trained and told and and are of the belief that that's how you sound when you are a quote unquote expert. Yep. And the second part is a healthy degree of fear and insecurity, which we all have. Yes. Because you're worried that you won't sound like, you know what you're talking about. Yep. Exactly right. Yep. It's a big fear. And I think in both cases, I think in both cases, it doesn't help anybody. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah. And that's the bigger point. Yeah. Um, you know, the, the fear of not looking like, you know, what you're talking about is huge. Yeah. And, and I notice that in myself sometimes. Yeah. I really, really, really try to avoid jargon. Um, my wife is a teacher and she hates it. Awesome. She hurts herself rolling her eyes. <laughs> and so I, uh, I really try to avoid it, but <laughs> it hurts herself. <laughs> it's for that point though. You know, it, you know, you just, it doesn't help anything, I think is the, no is what we're saying. So I, I agree with you. It, it just, it just reduces the chances of, of understanding. I, I'm of the frame of mind where you should always assume that nobody in the room knows what the hell you're talking about. Yeah. Yeah, sure. Right. And even if you use some sort of, uh, you know, office talk that seems to make sense to everyone, it still leaves room for interpretation. And I, and I think that is where you are not trying to be vague, but you're being vague and suddenly you are undermining yourself. Yeah. And it, it comes across in public spaces as well. Um, it comes across as arrogance to me. There are a lot of organizations, um, who I respect. Okay. Yep. That's still default to this. They'll post something right on Facebook or on Twitter or on LinkedIn and it's this sort of pithy, quick statement that is that is designed in a way that if you're in the know, okay, you'll know what it means. Yeah. And that bothers the hell out of me. Okay? <laughs> like, there are people out there who need to hear what you have to say. You have a valuable point of view. You have something of importance to express. Why in the hell would you want to do it in a way where people actually get the message? 
That drives me nuts. <laughs> oh, sure. That's a great point. I, I care about too many things. <laughs> <laughs> I should just, you know, I keep thinking that as I get older, I'll, I'll chill out about some of this stuff. It hasn't happened yet. No, that's, that's good, though. <laughs> that's what makes you you. So. I guess. That's good, man. I guess, I guess. It looks to me, when I look at your, your history, your LinkedIn profile, for example, it looks to me like you have been, aside from the jobs that you've had, you've been freelancing for a very long time. Is that something you're still doing in addition to the job? Not lately. So um, since I joined the large financial institution that I work at, I yeah. I haven't done it. Um, but it's something that I've done over the years. So first of all, I, I never set out to be a, a straight up freelancer. Mm-hmm. Um, it's it's not me chasing down work and and trying to get sales is is just not me. Mm-hmm. So I think, um, but I've always had people that needed help. You know, a small business that's trying to get off the ground, yeah. things like that. I really enjoy helping those out. You know, and I've gotten a chance to do it for for money in the past, but it's not something that I do now for a couple reasons. Um, the biggest probably being that I don't want to compete with the job I'm in right now, mm-hmm. um, but. Also, I have no time. I have a six-year-old and a three-year-old, and so um, <laughs> that's you know, enough. I, any any minute, any second that I have is spent helping them or hanging out with them or you know taking them to the park. So yeah, sure. Uh, so out of curiosity, and this is going to sound like a weird question, but I'm going to ask it anyway. Good. Um, how has, if it has, how has has having kids changed your perspective, um, either on what you do? for a living or how you do it or, or just maybe, maybe just your worldview in general? Great question. So there's a few ways. First of all, what's important has changed for me quite a bit. Um, you know, I used to, I used to think, you know, I can do, I can take any job and, you know, I, I live in Providence, but I could commute to Washington DC if I had to for the right job. Mm-hmm. I felt like the job was really important and I, I still think it is. You spend a very large percentage of your life at work. And so I think enjoying what you do is, is really key, but you know, there are some things that I can give up in order to be able to see my kids. You know, one of the, one of the reasons for my last job change was I was leaving the house before the kids were awake and I was coming home after they were asleep and they started not to recognize me. And, um, it was sort of a, an epiphany moment where, you know, I'm standing in a store and my son is making a noise that I didn't understand or that I, that I had never heard. Mm -hmm. And and so I called my wife and I was like, you know, listen to this. What is he doing? Is he okay? And she's like, Jay, he's, he's whining. He does this all the time. And I was like, oh man, that was, that was sort of it. Like I realized that I was focusing on the wrong thing and it sort of changed that changed my, my view of what's important. Mm -hmm. Um, the worldview is I've always had this worldview that I want everything to be as good as possible. And what I mean by that is, you know, people are always doing the right thing and, and people are always well-intentioned sure. and, and things like that. And I think, um, one of the things I would love to leave for them is the, the thought process that people always mean the best people are good, inherently good. Mm-hmm. Now, um, you know, that, that runs the risk of being naive, obviously. So there's a, there's a line there, but I want them to have that type of outlook. And so I, I try and bolster that in them all the time. No, which is, which is good. <laughs> and that's, and <laughs> that's one of the hardest parts of being a parent is because you have to reconcile the fact that a lot about life is, is less than perfect. 
and in some cases is downright ugly, difficult. Yep, absolutely. Difficult to understand, to explain. And at the same time, you want to make sure, I agree with you, that your kids grow up with hope, you know, with yeah. with positivity, with believing that, yeah, you know, sometimes things do work. Right. People are, for the most part, good. And I think that's a tall order for anybody. Yeah, it keeps me up at night, but I uh, that's it. You just said it. The word is hope. Yeah. It's one of the reasons, and, and I'd be curious to see what your opinion is on this without diving too deeply into this topic. Um, there are a lot of instances where we, we now have social media, right? We all have a platform. We have people who listen to what we have to say. On, on small and large scales, things are happening uh, in, in the world, in our country in particular, with our government. It is a difficult line for me personally to walk to say, okay, I really feel like I'm shirking my responsibility to people who pay attention to what I say if I don't speak up about this. At the same time, you're also worried at the same time that, that you know, now you're going to become just another political commentator, and I don't want to be that. Okay, <laughs> I, re- I really don't. Right. Um, I just, I wonder if, if you ever feel pulled that way and, and what your thoughts are about, you know, folks in, in high profile positions who at times, instead of speaking about design, um, you know, pipe up about what's going on in their world. Very interesting question. Um, so for, I have a lot of strong thoughts about it. Um, and I, I talk to my kids about it a lot, my six year old, especially yeah. she's sort of interested in it. But, um, so I, what I do is, um, in a lot of cases, I just won't say anything. Yeah. Right. I'll just stop because, um, I know that I, I'm passionate about a lot of these things and I can, uh, I can talk about it a whole lot. Um, or I can argue about it if you will, a whole lot. So, um, I, I try and generally stay away from it. Um, but I think what you're talking about is, is slightly different. And I, I do, I think it's important to, get the truth out and the right message, you know, and the, there's so much going on right now that is glossed over or spun a certain way. And, um, you know, maybe coming from advertising, I have a sort of a reaction to it, but I think, uh, words are really powerful. And I think that people can be swayed in a direction that even undermines their, possibly their own Mm self-interest, uh, because they hear certain words put together in a certain way. And so, yeah, I think, um, I think people with a platform, have a right to say the truth. Um, there's a, there's a line there though, you know, obviously you can get up on your user platform to say false things and then suddenly it's, it's useless. So, but I think you have to counteract that with the, the message of hope that uh, we were talking about earlier. Yeah. And that's, that's been the hard part. I'm sure. You know, that, that's been the hard part. I, I, it's hard to counteract that impulse to say, my God, I can't believe this is happening. I can't believe yeah. that people are saying and doing these things out loud. Yeah, I'm sure. And it's hard. And when you, like you said, when you have kids, you become a lot more sensitive to it. At least I most certainly did and certainly am right now. Totally. That's my yep. biggest fear. Okay. I have two daughters and watching a lot of what's going on right now. Yep. Uh, you feel like it's dangerous to remain silent. Yeah. Oh my God. Yeah. Because silence, because silence can equal agreement. And I'm right. You know, I, I'm really afraid of that, but it's tough. It's tough. And, yeah. and, and I hope 
I guess all we can hope for is you, you try to err on the side of you call stuff out when you see it, but you also try to make sure you're, you're, you're being supportive um, and positive in some way. I don't always win that battle, but I, I sure as hell I'm trying. <laughs> yeah, it's hard. And I'm sure, um, you know, I don't have the platform that you have, so I'm sure that that's, that's a lot of struggle. And sometimes, you know, and, and people say, um, shut up and talk about UX and design, right? Right. <laughs> and, and I yeah. get, I, you know, I, I, yep. I, I really get it. Sure. But it's a, you know, so it's a, it's a, it's this constant struggle of, yeah, that's what people want to hear from me. And that's where my value is. And, and I should be doing that at the same time. It's really hard for me to say, okay, I'm never going to talk about any of this other stuff. Right. Yeah. Because it's there, you know, it's there. Whether you want, of course, whether you want to deal with it or not, it's there. Oh God, it's definitely there. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> all right, we're at about a little, little less than ten minutes out. So I would like to ask you some quick, sort of hot seat questions, which okay, ho- hopefully you'll answer. <laughs> and if not, not. <laughs> um, we'll start easy. All right, favorite movie of all time. Wow. I thought you said easy. You can choose a book as well. Well, um, I do a lot of reading, so it's it's usually the the book that I'm reading at the time. Mm-hmm. I'm reading uh, Principles by Ray Dalio right now, and it's it's really interesting. It's it's amazing that he can live his life and run his business in the way that he does. Mm-hmm. It's really good. Um, I would say movie would be a, a toss up. There's one called Pool Hall Junkies mm-hmm. that is amazing, um, and then of course. Star Wars came out on my birthday, and I grew up with Star Wars, so I would have to go, except for the prequel ones. I would have to go with Star Wars. Okay. Why, if you're able to explain that? Why Star Wars? Yeah. Uh, you know, it was in my life. I went to see it when I was, I think I was three. Uh-huh. And it's just been in my life ever since, and I, I just, I like the storyline. I like the characters. I just, it's one of those things that has just always been there. Yeah, and it's got a great deal of depth. It does. I mean, that, that movie really has, a, has an amazing degree of depth when you really look at it. Yeah, definitely. See, that was easy. <laughs> All right, so tell me something, a hidden talent, for example, that you have that either nobody knows about or not too many people know about. Uh, a hidden talent, well. Or something you do that nobody knows about. So something that I do all the time that I, I find a bunch of value in is um, – I digitize everything and it's all in the, in the name of, you know, these, they're almost like notes. So, um, anytime I'll draw a flow on a board, I will, I'll put it in, in sketch. I I have a a library built where I can just grab symbols and put them on there and I, I can illustrate flows really quickly and that, and then I can leave them on my sketch file. Um, and, and I always have this sort of frame of reference for, what I'm doing to help guide the interaction. They're throwaways, you know, and I spend, I spend some time on them, not too much, but they're, they're sort of something that nobody ever sees. Uh, but I take great pride in them and I really like, I enjoy making them. Interesting. So you're doing more than scanning them. You're, you're actually recreating them in sketch. I do. And that it gives me a chance to rethink, uh, the, the interactions that I've drawn on a whiteboard and it, it gives me a chance to go over them again. And then I have it as a frame of reference right there in my sketch file. I think that's incredibly valuable. And you, you're the first person I've ever talked to uh, who's told me they've, they've done something like that. Really? That's cool. I, I thought it wouldn't be that, that much of a hidden thing, but um, I, I love it. I really... No, and I'm sitting here going, what a great idea. 
<laughs> yeah, well, because for, for multiple reasons, it's, it's, it's the old thing about from a UX uh, psychological perspective, cognitive perspective, it's depth of processing, right? Yep. You're involved. You're really involved and you're thinking about it. And the act of taking it and recreating it automatically invites you to rethink through everything. And I think that's incredibly valuable. Yeah, that and it helps you understand it. Yeah, you know, looking at um, a trading system is inc- incredibly complex, and there's a lot of different scenarios, and you can you can go through it and really understand which one works here and which one doesn't work here, and which one yeah. uh, you know what this flow needs, and and yeah, I find it hugely beneficial. Wow, that's powerful. Write that one down, folks. That's good. <laughs> that's good. I'm, I'm seriously thinking about okay, how can I start doing the same thing? <laughs> See, you taught me something. It's all about sketch libraries. I can send you one if you want. Awesome. Please do. Next question. What word or phrase do you say far too often? Far too often. Uh, well, uh, I say too much, I'm sure. Uh, definitely I say man. <laughs> I overuse man. <laughs> In what way? Uh, I, I've been known to start and end sentences with the word man. So, uh, yeah, I, sometimes it's... I think maybe it's an effort to be casual, yeah. but, um, you know, I think I definitely use it in the wrong places sometimes. Um, uh, and then there's two great words and they are thought and leadership, mm-hmm. but I hate it when they're strung together in a sentence. And so, um, I'll use those sometimes because that's one of those things where everybody knows in, in my specific context, everybody knows what I'm talking about, yeah. but it, it just, I have to take a shower. after <laughs> saying I hate it. <laughs> Take a shower. <laughs> That's good. Feels gross. All right. So yep. on the heels of that, give me another phrase that, that evokes the same cringiness <laughs> in you. Oh, um, well, I think it would be too obvious to pick, the, you know, the jargony ones like circle back. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I, you know what I do? I use the word just uh-huh. sometimes in an email. Um, and so in an effort to set a tone, I'll, I'll, I'll you know, just checking in here or something. Right. And I feel like it makes me almost like I'm apologizing beforehand. Yeah. Um, and I, I try not to do that, but I definitely, I, I hate it when, you know, I'll send an email and then somebody will respond back and I'll reread what I sent. And I'm like, ah, oh, <laughs> it's horrible. You know, so I do that sometimes. That urge never goes away. Okay. <laughs> I'm, I'm here to tell you, I've been for as yeah, long as okay. I've this, that urge never goes away because I'm guilty of it as well. Yeah. Like, hey, just, just checking in to, because yeah. part of you, and I'll be honest with you, okay, it bothers the hell out of me when people just go silent. Oh, sure. Okay, on a, on, on a conversation. That drives me absolutely insane. Sure. Because I think there's no excuse, okay, to take three seconds, shoot an email back, and say, hey, slammed right now. Sorry, I haven't gotten back to you. I promise I will. Right. As soon as humanly possible. I don't even care when the date is. All right. It's just an acknowledgement of I've left you hanging. Yep. Right. I think that's important. So when people don't do that, I'm always on the fence about how to respond because I want to say what I want to say, but you don't want to pick a fight for no reason. You don't know what's (laughs) going on in that person's life. Okay. It could be, God forbid, it could be something serious. Right. So I tend to do the same thing. It's like, hey. Just, just me <laughs> over here, and uh, like you, it's 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 probably a bad habit. Well, and tone is tough to convey over email, so no, oh, yeah. It, sometimes it it works to set a good tone, but oh yeah. <laughs> All right, final hot seat question, and, right. and it's a big one as well. You're gonna hate me. 
but that's okay. You have the proverbial one wish, and it can't be 10 more wishes. <laughs> what is it? Wow. I told you. One wish, huh? Just one. Hmm. Choose wisely. Yeah, I need like a, a day or so to think about this. <laughs> um, uh, you know, my brain is going two ways, and they both sound really um, selfish and trite. But, um, okay, you know, obviously, the, I, the, the one way should be that my, my kids and my family have, have great lives, and they, they grow up healthy and have, you know, fulfilling, happy lives. Uh, the other one would be, and this one's really trite, but the, uh, the other one would be world peace. And I, and I don't mean that in the Miss America pageant way, but I mean it in that everybody sees the good in everybody else and that everybody is inherently well-intentioned um, without being naive. So that would be a tough wish to get across. But um, I don't think that's trite at all. And, and after talking to you, you know, for, for an hour, I think it's a pretty accurate summary of who you are, my friend. Well, thank you very much. It has been my absolute pleasure talking to you. I wish you continued success and uh, all good things. Keep us abreast of what's going on with you, and we will talk again soon. Yep, absolutely. That wraps up this edition of Making UX Work. Thanks for listening, and I hope hearing these stories provides some useful perspective and encouragement, along with a reminder that you're not alone out there. Before I go, I want you to know that you can find show notes and links to the things mentioned during our conversation by visiting givegoodux.com slash podcast. You'll also find links to more UX resources on the web and social media, along with ways to contact me if you're interested in sharing your own story here. Until next time, this is Joe Natoli reminding you that it's people like you who make UX work.